Hello and welcome to the Stock Podcast. I'm Nate Abercrombie, the host of the only investing podcast that gives everyone the chance to hear public company CEOs and CFOs describe their business and provide the investment case for their company. In this episode, the Stock Podcast is really excited to bring you an interview with Mark Harding. He's the CEO and CFO of Pure Cycle Corporation, ticker symbol PCYO. Pure Cycle is a water utility. Well, sort of. For me, when I hear the word utility, the first thought that comes to mind is a company whose business activities are regulated by state or federal authorities. It's probably more accurate to describe the company as a wholesale provider of water and wastewater services. Sort of in the same way that NRG Energy and the other independent power producers are not fully regulated, but produce a commodity that everyone needs and uses. And we all know that water is something that we need. We have to have it. And the most important thing to know about PureCycle is that it owns an enormous amount of water. In a nutshell, PureCycle owns the rights to a large amount of water just outside of Denver. And it's developing a community that will consume that water. It's also worth mentioning that PureCycle's assets are in a region of Colorado where oil and gas wells are being drilled, which means the company can pull forward the monetization of its resource while the development and construction of Sky Ranch takes place. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Denver housing market, it's going crazy. Houses that were built in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s in my neighborhood are selling for north of $500,000, and developers come in, scrape the house, and build something new and probably too big for the lot, and then turn around and sell the houses for north of a million dollars. The availability of affordable single-family housing in the city is extremely low. And the thing about Denver is that we're right up against the foothills. So you really can't build a lot towards the west, but the eastern parts of Denver are growing like crazy. Sky Ranch is in that area. So you'll hear more about this in the interview, but at a very high level, PureCycle purchased water rights east of Denver. And while PureCycle might have been a little bit early to the game purchasing water rights a couple of decades ago, the value of those water rights today, or at least the amount of money that you would need today to purchase the amount of water that PureCycle currently owns, is much greater than what PureCycle initially bought them for. I never met with Mark or anyone from PureCycle while I was on the buy side, and the company came to my attention from a couple of friends and value investors who think very highly of Mark and his business. After sitting down with Mark and learning about his company, I understood why. Similar to Steve Newby in the previous interview, Mark is a visionary in the sense that he saw the future value of a resource, and he saw the direction of an industry, and he acted. In addition, he's proven himself to be a pretty impressive capital allocator. You'll hear more about Sky Ranch during the interview, but there's a little story worth telling that highlights Mark's capital allocation record. During the financial crisis, the development company that owned the Sky Ranch property went bankrupt. Mark stepped in and bought the roughly 1,000 acres of Sky Ranch land for $7 million. But the Sky Ranch property included more than just land. It also included mineral rights and another 830 acre feet of water rights. Since acquiring the land in 2010, PureCycle has already received about $3 million in oil and gas lease and royalty payments. And additionally, PureCycle has executed a purchase and sale agreement with three construction companies for the first phase of the Sky Ranch development. The agreement is expected to result in roughly $7 million gross proceeds over the next several years. If you assume that oil and gas activity ticks up, commodity prices go up, there's a real chance that PureCycle could double its investment in the first 10 years. And that doesn't even scratch the surface. The first phase of Sky Ranch is expected to include roughly 500 houses. 
but all four phases of Sky Ranch could include up to 5,000 houses. If one assumes that Pure Cycle can earn the same level of margin on all of the future lots that it sells, the total lot value to Pure Cycle could be around $70 million. Now, a lot of that depends on how quickly houses are built, and that's obviously out of Pure Cycle's control, but there's clearly significant value in the land alone. And the land isn't even Pure Cycle's core asset, it's the water. Pure Cycle owns 27,000 acre feet of water rights. Despite the fact that water is humanity's most precious resource, there are only about a dozen publicly traded water companies in the US today. And most of these companies only own water infrastructure assets, so the pipes, the storage tanks, etc. That's because water rights are typically held in public trust. Most water utilities have contracts, permits, and allocation rights that are granted by federal and state bodies. But private water rights are expensive or very hard to come by, which is one of the reasons why PureCycle as a company is just fascinating to me. The water utilities that are traded on the U.S. stock exchanges aren't cheap. Companies like American Water Works, Aqua America, American States Water all trade with extremely lofty multiples. Now, it's pretty difficult to look at Pure Cycle's multiples and compare Pure Cycle to some of the larger water utilities. And that's mainly because Pure Cycle's Sky Ranch property is currently under construction. But if you take a look at Pure Cycle's investor presentation, you'll see that reoccurring revenues from water and wastewater services, in addition to the tap fees or the installation fees associated with the infrastructure, exceed Pure Cycle's current enterprise value which is one of the reasons why I think this company and the stock is so interesting. Another reason why it's interesting is because there is line of sight to stable revenues from the Sky Ranch customers, but there's also a lot of juice from the oil and gas water sales business, as well as the royalties PureCycle could receive in the future. One of the things I like to do when I'm evaluating an equity investment is, is to take a look at who else owns the stock. If there's a money manager out there who I've heard good things about or respect, and they own a big position, right or wrong, that gives me just incremental confidence. Pure Cycle has one of those investors in Par Capital, which is managed by legendary value investor, Paul Reeder. Now, I don't know Paul or the Par guys at all, but I have a trusted friend who does, and he can't say enough good things about them. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. Thank you, Mark, for coming on to the IWTV podcast. It's going to be a pleasure talking about your business. So uh, thank you very much for, for agreeing to an interview. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, Nate. So could you first start out just talking about your background? Sure. Uh, I came through this side of the business on really investment banking. Yeah, I had an undergraduate degree in computer engineering back in the uh, mid 80s. Uh, went to work for an engineering consulting firm, worked on a fascinating project. I was uh, on contract to the USGS and we were working on the high level radioactive waste repository license. And so this is where uh, the federal government is looking at putting the power plant fuel rods in a safe storage keeping vessel. And at the time I was looking at this project, we were looking at five different sites, my particular site or my team's site. And I was just one of many number of team members on the site was the Yucca Mountain site in Nevada, which is ultimately the site that got 
picked for the most suitable place to put this, but I think it's still stuck even 30 years later in a regulatory bureaucracy of trying to get that thing permitted such that they can do something with that. But learned relatively quickly that there were many other smarter people than I was on the very technical side of computing. And then we were looking at uh, hydrology. And so it was a lot of water analytics and uh, how water moves, where it moves and the pace at which it moves. Went back to business school, uh, got my graduate degree in finance. And then from there went to work for Pricewaterhouse, which was um, back when the accounting firms were all things to all people. They had a consulting practice. And so I was part of that consulting practice and was working in their investment banking practice. And so the particular specialty, a lot, most of the public finance needs that uh, municipalities face are going to be relative to water and sewer because they're very capital intensive. So you have to have a lot of financing to be able to build the facilities that you need to build on water and sewer facilities. So we were doing a lot of work with uh, clients, which happened to also be audit or tax clients of the firm, providing them some investment banking related services. And then the Pure Cycle was an audit engagement for the firm. So the audit partner came down and asked me to take a look at what they were doing, met with the management team at the time and kind of gave them my recommendations uh, of what I thought they should be focusing on. And they said, you're right, we should be focusing on that. You need to come help us do that. And so that was about 29 years ago. Yeah. So- how did you come across? So I've heard the story from a couple of different people that the story about you actually acquiring the water rights that eventually became Pure Cycle. Could you walk us through how that how that you transpired? You bet. So so originally the company focused on manufacturing what I'll call widgets, which was they were building a single family standalone water recycling system for a single family house. And what you do is you'd put this system behind your house and you'd have a clean water tank on one end, a dirty water tank on the other end, and a process, a system in between those two that would process that water. So all day long, you would use the clean water through the household and all the plumbing would go into the dirty water tank. And then all night, it would process that water back into clean water so that you'd wake up in the morning and you'd have your fresh supply of water. And so my recommendation was, well, the technology was great and there's a lot of different ways that you can take dirty water and turn it into clean water. That's not special what their particular niche was that they had sort of a process that allowed them to do that on a smaller scale. And I said, you know, you're attacking this at a very difficult scale where you're doing it on a individual unit basis and you need to be doing this more on a large municipal wide basis and really the most valuable component of that is not what you're making, it's the resource itself. And so, you know, I'm a Denver native growing up in Colorado. It was difficult to grow up here and not be aware of the sensitivities and the value of water resources just because we have such a limited amount of supply here. And so my recommendation was you need to go long on water. And coming out of business school, it sort of had a, a good fit because it had a real analytic 
to it. When you have a fixed supply of, a, of something, whatever that something is, and a growing demand, and you can't change the supply, yeah. and you're going to have growing demand, your macroeconomics class tells you that's where you want to be. Yeah. You want to own that supply because you just can't create it. And it's interesting, you know, if you look at this thing on a macro scale, it's one of the few businesses or the few commodities that you're going to be doing the same thing with water a hundred years from now that you're going to do today. Yeah. It's not something that's going to be obsoleted. It's not something that's going to be perishable or technology is going to inundate or anything like that. Water has that critical, long sustaining value. So looking at it from that perspective, that was my advice. Buy all the water you can. And so when I came into the company, we did just that and probably even bought more than we can afford through the years, but was really looking at owning that, holding it. It's very, it's very cost prohibitive to buy. So there's a high barrier of entry to acquire water rights. It's very costly to get that on the front end. It's very cheap to hold, but it's very costly to get into the game. And then that continued to grow in value. So we went out and we were scouring the number of different projects. And I remember taking a look at the uh, the project that is our principal asset, the project with the Lowry supply. And at the time, you know, we were going to take a position on that. And almost everybody in the market said, boy, you know, you're crazy. They're not going to need that asset for 25 years. And they were right. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, there was a little bit of dead time in there where, you know, we were a bit early in that cycle to acquire that supply. But if we had to wait till today to do something, there'd be no way we could mm -hmm. afford it. I mean, it was fortuitous for us to have that position, be able to hold that position, to be able to own that with a perpetual currency, which is sort of the equity currency of a public company, and then really capitalize on opportunities to monetize that. So that was really our venture is to come in early, get that supply, and then continue to build on that supply with infrastructure. And that infrastructure can be built and financed when you have customers for that. So that's kind of how we've acquired this through the years. And then we've had other bolt-on acquisitions to that supply where we were able to add elements of that, either infrastructure or other water rights uh, that are companion water rights to this supply through the years. So, so when did you buy the, the Lowry water rights? So our first money into that probably was back in maybe 1988, 89 oh, wow. timeframe. So this is very, very long time ago, 30 years ago. Yeah. Wow. And how do you buy water rights? Is there like an auction every year or how does that well, work? Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, most, and, and I remember talking about this, you know, to Wall Street and to money managers through the years. And it was a foreign concept that you could actually own water. I mean, in Colorado, and I would say Colorado is probably the tip of the spear on defining ownership of water as a property interest. And so we have very special protections for water here. We have very special constitutional protections that allow owners of that privileges that it's difficult to be able to use eminent domain rights to have somebody condemn a water right just because they think they have a higher or better use for it. That's just not done. And so it's much like real estate. You can buy water with ground. You can buy ground without water. You can buy water without ground or as a combination. So any number of those where you can do it as a asset transaction, just like real estate, you can get separate title on water. So you can get an insurable title policy as it relates to the acquisition. That's how defined ownership of water is in the state of Colorado and predominantly 
under under sort of the Western water laws, what, what I would define as appropriation system, that's very common that you can have a severable property interest in owning water. Hmm. So, so it, it, where do you acquire, where do you buy them? I mean, is from, it, property from property rights, from okay. a property owner, a farmer, okay. you know, that would say, hey, listen, I've, you know, third generation, my kids don't want to farm anymore. The value of uh, my dirt might be a few hundred dollars, but the value of my water is several thousands of dollars. And so the water could be worth 10 times what the dirt's yeah. worth. Wow. The Lowry water rights, was it the city that, or was it the Air Force or something? No, that no, no that, that particular asset was actually a joint venture with the state of Colorado. So the state of Colorado has a constitutionally empowered entity called the Colorado State Land Board. And federal government, when they, when the state became a state, gave Western states land trusts. So they were able to give Colorado every section 16 and section 36 in every township and range throughout the state of Colorado lands that they could manage for public schools. And so what they've done over the 130 years of the state's existence is they take those assets and then they partner with private enterprise to develop the assets for a royalty. And then that royalty then goes into fund public education. So what we do creates a royalty to K through 12 public schools. That's the largest. They have a number of beneficiaries, but that's the largest beneficiary in the state of Colorado. Originally, when the state, uh, when the federal government gave them, they had something like 4 million acres of land. So it kind of depended. Certain states got two sections of ground. Some states got four sections of ground. And they really managed that together with their partners or private uh, partnerships to be able to develop those, whether that's oil and gas, whether that's land development, uh, any number of water, timber, coal, any sorts of uh, resource development that they would be able to generate revenue for public education. You, you mentioned Colorado being kind of the tip of the spear for water rights and just defining them. And I remember it was the first drought that I experienced after moving here that had these rules that came down in terms of how much we can water our yard. And then I had this neighbor across the street who's like fourth generation Denverite. And he said, I, I don't I don't give a shit about the rules that the city passes down because I don't think that California deserves to have this many flowing cubic meters per second or whatever it is. Cubic feet per second. Yeah, and, uh, and I looked into it and I was shocked at how how, how defined the rules are in terms of what, what the obligation is for Colorado to deliver water to Utah, to Arizona, to California, to Mexico. And these rules, these laws are what, like 100 years old? Right. 150 years old? Yep. Yep. So I'll give you an interesting statistic. There's, there's two states that are net exporters of water, which means no water flows into the state. Water only flows out of the state. Can you guess what the other state is? So because I mentioned it, Colorado's yeah. one of them. But the other state, ironically, is Hawaii. Really? I would have never guessed that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because you would think nothing's really flowing into yeah. Hawaii. It's, yeah. just a, it's just a precipitation. And really, that's why Colorado is so focal in water matters, is we are the headwaters for all, well, five major tributary water supplies that flow out of the state. And it's due to our elevation, yeah. right? We're... We're high in the in the in the 
scheme of the thrust of the tectonic plates on this thing. And so when we get precipitation here, it all flows out of the state. Yeah. And so, yes, you're right. We have very complicated, what we call compacts. And whether that's flowing east to Kansas or Nebraska, or whether that's flowing west through the Colorado River uh, into Utah or New Mexico, it, it very complex, you know, we can't just stop water availability because there's historic flows and there's compacts and treaties with Mexico uh, that allow the use of water flows, historic water flows. So it's a very sophisticated system of how you manage and how you protect those rights. And that's why we have so many water lawyers. There's so many. We have a separate bar here in Colorado, where you have a whole separate court system that deals with nothing, nothing but water administration. Really? I did not realize yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, but you say it's sophisticated. These rules were determined so, so long ago with global warming and weather patterns changing. That's definitely going to change the amount of you know snowpack and ultimately flows downstream. So Has it changed much over the hundred past however many years? It it, it is cyclical, you know, and I I will say that, you know, you do have changing weather patterns that do have a a large degree of variability on how much precipitation we get. Colorado, you know, it's it's a marvelous state, right? Mother Nature does us a terrific service. And typically all of our precipitation here comes in the form of snowpack. So when we talk about what our weather patterns is or what our precipitation is, we can say, okay, we usually get around 13 inches of precipitation a year, but that that precipitation comes in that form of snowpack. So Mother Nature spends six months of the year storing all of that precipitation for us, which is terrific, right? We get to hold that for a period of time, but just as a sense of humor, because when we get it, we get it in 45 days. <laughs> I mean, it all comes on the on the spring snowmelt, comes and it rushes through the system in all of our spring runoff, and that happens to be about 30 days in advance of our demand cycle of when we want to start our irrigation and when our summer season goes. And so we have a very cyclical cycle of how water comes to us, as well as the demand side. So our summertime use here in the state of Colorado is three times what our wintertime use is because we just don't irrigate year round. In California, they irrigate year round. In other parts of the country, they can irrigate year round. We only irrigate four months in the summer and we have these huge peak water demands. And so if you're not able to catch that water when it's coming down in the system, it's gone forever. It's gone for that year. And so not only is supply an important component of that, but what you do with it, how you store it, you know, the buckets that you can put that in and be able to catch it when it's available and use it when you need it. Yeah. Yeah. And so climate change is, you know, back to your original question, climate change is an important component of that. And it changes the variability and seasonality of the issues. And that's something that we pay a lot of attention to is to make sure that we have storage that can carry us over in, you know, multi-year drought cycles where you might have low precipitation you know, two, three years in a row, and your demand wants to be at that same level, and then we have to restrict our users. We have to come in and say, hey, listen, we're going to have watering restrictions. We're going to have certain day of the week that you can water your lawns or certain times of the day where we can water those lawns to help regulate that supply variability. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a fascinating topic um, and one that I'm learning about every year now that I'm in Colorado. Um 
So what does PureCycle do? Let's get back to the business. Uh, so w- what exactly does PureCycle do? So at a, at a DNA level, we're a water utility company. We are what you would normally think of when you think of paying your water bill to your XYZ water provider. Typically, that service is provided by a municipal government. If you look at nationwide, uh, about 15% of water utilities are provided by private water utilities. And we're one of those private water utilities. We happen to operate in the state of Colorado, but for the most part, It is a water utility that develops water supply for consumers. And we go cradle to grave in that. We buy the water rights where we own the real property interest. We develop the infrastructure that diverts it, that treats it, that distributes it to our customers. We collect it back once they turn it into a liability. We process that, we clean that back up, and then we reuse that water supply. Because here in a landlocked state, the most valuable supply, new water supply, is going to be your wastewater supply and being able to turn that back into clean water. We don't have that in a closed loop system. We have two systems that deliver water to customers. We have our domestic system that takes it to the house. And then we have an irrigation system, which takes treated, highly treated wastewater and puts that out for parks and open space and common areas to irrigate the outdoor lawns. Is that gray water? Is that what you call gray water? A couple of different gray water or, you know, black water, you know, sewer wastewater, as well as just raw water, wastewater. So gray water is typically what you would say washing machines, you know, non-sewer water that's just dirty water. But but all that stuff gets blended in the same system. Yes. I see. So are you regulated by the state? So the state does have some regulatory oversight in the industry. You know, we typically... Uh, view this as uh, an open market as it relates to the exchange of the water commodity itself, the real property interest. So we don't regulate that at all because that's a property interest. And the state has a mechanism for how water is delivered to a community. So Colorado is a very sensitive tax state. So we define this as a sales tax incentive state where a large disproportionate amount of government income comes from sales tax. We have very modest property taxes here. We have very modest income tax. So you still have to get the same level of money to operate your governmental services. And if we're going to have modest uh, revenue sources on those first two, then you got to have a weighted mechanism on sales tax. And so because we, we protect those mill levies, we'll call that, those, those are your property taxes so aggressively, it's very difficult for cities and municipalities to go to their constituents. Every time they want to use any mill levies, voters have to approve that. If you'd like to continue listening to this interview, you'll need to become a member. To become a member, visit the website at thestockpodcast.com. Members have access to all full-length episodes. So go to the website, thestockpodcast.com, and click membership at the top. And with that, take care and good luck with your portfolio.